thanks for listening to this sermon from Cedar Springs Church. We know life is busy and it's easy to get caught up running in so many directions. At Cedar Springs, we see you and we're with you. We also understand the feeling inside of you for something deeper. In fact, we believe God created us for those deeper things and we want to help you discover them. We want to introduce you to a life lived deeply with God and with others. If you're not already, we invite you to visit us during one of our Sunday worship services. We are all working toward taking our next step to move into deeper faith and community. So come, take your next step with us. We don't want you to settle for life as normal because you were made to live deeply. Friends, good morning, church family. It's good to see you. I hope you've had a a good Thanksgiving week. If you're visiting with us, maybe you're in town uh, visiting with family for Thanksgiving, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Looking forward to this time together. My name is James Forsyth. I'm the senior pastor here. And today we start our our Advent series. As a church family, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. We're halfway through and we'll pick up with that series again in January. But now we turn attention to Advent, to celebrate the arrival of Jesus and to anticipate the fact that Jesus will come again. And the way we're going to do that this year is by looking at Jesus's family tree, looking at the genealogy of Jesus and the names that appear there. And what we're going to see is that Jesus's family is incredibly dysfunctional. (laughs) The lives of his ancestors full of deceit, murder, rape, incest, and more. And in that, we're going to see there's hope for our dysfunctional families too. We have an Advent devotional, uh, one for each day of of Advent. You can find it online. I encourage you to to jump on and do that, an e-book there. Each morning, you can read about one of the characters who appears in the genealogy of of Jesus. But the sermons uh, throughout this month are going to focus on the women that appear in the genealogy of Jesus, Uh, five of them in total. Today, we start with Tamar. I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 38, where we read about her story. Genesis 38, I'm going to read verses 11 through 19, then 24 through to the end, end of the chapter. Let's give our attention to God's word. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Tyra the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she'd not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. 
So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. But the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Sheila, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread in his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread in his hand, and his name was called Zira. This is the word of the Lord? <laughs> oh, Ron Burgundy fans, I feel like this needs a question mark, okay? This is the word of the, 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 the Lord? Sometimes, sometimes the Bible is hard to read. It's certainly not a nice collection of moral tales designed to inspire a, a positive life and some clean-cut moral living. No, sometimes the darkness and depravity of the Bible are almost overwhelming, and surely this passage is, is one such example. But don't we know that all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God? And so there are things in this passage that we need to, we need to see. So let's pray. Let's pray together. Let's pray for one another. Let's pray for me <laughs> as we open up this text together. Father, we do come praying that you would give us the insight we need to see you in your, your word. I pray that you would rule and overrule the words of my lips and that you would rule and overrule in, in our own spiritual senses that, that we, might, we might see you in this time. And we pray it in the happy name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the events of this chapter, tragic as they are, take place in a town called Enayim, which means the opening of the eyes. The opening of the eyes. And, and don't we need that? Don't we need to have our eyes open? Don't we need to be able to see? <laughs> Sometimes in very practical ways, it is not too long ago that one of my dear children, a beloved son whom I love, went to the gas station and filled his gas tank up with diesel. <laughs> How did this happen, I ask? He replied, I, I just didn't see. <laughs> now, I can't be too hard on him. Why? Because I am forever losing my wallet, my keys, and my phone. Were it not for my own beloved bride, I'd have lost half my possessions already. How did you not see them, she asks. I say, I don't know, I just, I just didn't see. <laughs> Sometimes it's the more important things, though, isn't it? Sometimes we, we don't see when a friend is struggling. 
Or perhaps we don't see the impact we're having on other people. We don't see how we've hurt someone else. Perhaps we get caught up in guilt and shame and and we don't see how much God loves us. There are all sorts of ways in which we fail to see all sorts of important things until sometimes, like that gas tank, it's too late. (laughs) It's too late. So what are we to see in this passage? What, What would God have our eyes open to in this strange story this morning? Well, I want to suggest and I want us to consider that there are three things we need to see about the heart of God if we're to celebrate Christmas. Three things about God's heart that we must see if we're to celebrate Christmas. Because friends, Christmas, it's going to come and it's going to go. And the only thing's for sure is that it will be busy. There are presents to buy and there are events to attend and there are relatives that you must or may joyfully go and and visit. But one way or the other, we're all going to do all sorts of things. And I do hope that we enjoy it all. But I also want us to celebrate Christ this Christmas. I don't want us to miss him. I don't want this to be yet another year where we just go through the motions, get caught up in the busyness and miss miss the true celebration of it all. And this passage is going to help us by showing us these three things. And I don't just want to look at them this morning. I want you to see them this morning. But first, let's familiarize ourselves with this strange story. It starts with Tamar. She is the woman that this story is all about. And she is a a Canaanite woman, which means she wasn't part of the Israelite nation. She wasn't part of God's people until she married Judah's son, Ur. So Judah, you may remember, is Jacob's son. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. Jacob had 12 sons. Judah is the fourth of them. And in time, he had a son of his own whom he named Ur. Now, this is a strange name because in Hebrew, it's evil written backwards. Strange thing to name your son. I didn't even name my son that after the whole gas tank incident, okay? (laughs) Um, He called his, his son evil written backwards, and in time, his son lived up to his name. Verse 7 of chapter 38 tells us that he was evil, that he was wicked, and for his evil and wickedness, God put him to death. We're not actually told what he did, nor are we told how God did it. We're just told he was very wicked and he was very evil, and so God put him to death. Well, after Tamar's first husband, Ur, is put to death by the Lord, she marries Judah's second son, whose name is Onan. And that's how it worked in their society. That's how things went in their society. If, 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 a, if a widow was left childless, the next member of the family, it was their responsibility to, to step up. And so it was their responsibility, the brother's responsibility, in this case, Onan's responsibility, to step up and provide. But Onan, do you know that he won't, he won't do it? In fact, we read in a a shocking account in the start of Genesis 38 about how he sexually abuses Tamar. And then, do you know what happens to him for his evil and his wickedness? God puts him to death as well. God puts him to death as as well. And so now here we have Tamar, twice widowed, still childless. And then here comes Judah saying, okay, in time, I'll let you marry my third son as well. 
As was appropriate with the customs of their day, the first two sons have died, and so now that the third son she is to be married to, but apparently he's too young to be married at this point. So Judah tells Tamar, okay, go home to your father's house, and in time, when my third son is grown, you can marry him as well. But verse 11 tells us that he never has any intention of actually fulfilling that vow. Why? Because he has two dead sons, and he thinks he knows what the common denominator is. He thinks it's Tamar. And he thinks if my third son marries her, he's going to end up dead as well. Shocking self, you know, willful blindness to the evil that exists within his own family. He, he thinks that, that she's the one to blame. And so he sends her away with no ever, intention of ever fulfilling this vow. Don't call us, we'll call you. That's, that's his plan. Well, in response to this, Tamar, Tamar devises her own plan. This family, they may not be willing to meet their responsibilities, but I will have children through this family. And so one day she hears that the Judah is going to be passing through her hometown. And so she gets up and she dresses as a prostitute and she covers her face with a veil. And then she positions herself in the path that she knows he is going to come because she knows his character. And sure enough, what happens? When he sees her, he doesn't recognize her, but he wants to have some fun. And so he buys her as a prostitute. But when he's done, he's traveling and he doesn't have any cash on him. Right? So he pats his pockets and says, I, I, can't pay you. I can't pay you just now. And so Tamar says, that's fine. But what will you give me as an earnest, as a guarantee that you will send payment in time? And so Judah hands over his signet and his card and his staff. Commentators say this is the equivalent of handing over your driver's license. That's what he's doing here. He's handing over identification of who he is as an earnest or a promise that he will send money back in time. And, and, and sure enough, they part in verse 18. He goes on his way, but Tamar goes pregnant by him. Well, fast forward to verse 24, we pick up and it's three months later. She's now three months pregnant at this time. She's starting to show and word comes back to Judah that she's pregnant. We read that uh, word comes to him that his daughter-in-law has been guilty of immorality and she is now pregnant by immorality. And what does Judah do when he hears this word? Not understanding, not realizing that he's the dad, he rubs his hands together in delight. Why? Because now he finally has a chance to get rid of her. And so he calls for her to be brought and, and burned. His narrative in the Hebrew is literally just two words. Bring, burn. That's what he thinks should be done to Tamar. And isn't it a spectacular double standard? He thinks he can go and visit prostitutes, but if she's found guilty of immorality, then she should be brought and burned. And then the drama unfolds as she's been dragged to the flames. She pulls out the driver's license. Send this to Judah. See if he recognizes it. Because the, the owner of this license, I'm pregnant by him. Well, that license comes back. Judah stares at his own face. <laughs> his eyes broaden and then spiritually his eyes open. And the key verse is verse 26 where he says, she 
is more righteous than I. <laughs> she, is, she is more righteous than, than I. And so he, he, he stops. He has this moment of, of realization, this moment of self-awareness, um, this moment of self-awakening, much like David had when he was confronted with the prophet Nathan. Remember that story? David has been guilty of murder and he's been guilty of, of rape and all kinds of abuse. And he is um, hiding it and covering up and, and not repenting before the Lord. So the Lord sends Nathan, the prophet, to him who tells him a, a parable of his own life. David doesn't realize it's a parable. He hears about the evil and injustice that's performed by the, the key protagonist of this, this tale. And he, he decrees that this man deserves to die. And then Nathan turns and says to him, this man who deserves to die, you are the man. You are the man who deserves to die. Well, here, here we find Judah having a, a David and Nathan moment of, of, his, of his own. And so as the, the narrative ends, he, he's pulling Tamar back into his family of the posture of repentance. And Tamar goes on to give birth to his two children. A strange story. What do we do with it? Three things we need to see about the heart of God if we're to celebrate Christmas. First, I want, I want us to see, I want us to see, Lord, open our eyes, see the fact that God, the God of the Bible, is passionate about justice. The God of the Bible is passionate about justice, and he's particularly passionate about justice for the vulnerable. Passionate for, about justice for the vulnerable. Now, before we agree too quickly with this point, can we see that the text doesn't exactly play out as we might expect? Why? Well, where does the weight of justice fall in this text? Is it upon Tamar for her deceit and her prostitution and her incest? No. <laughs> it's on Ur and Onan and, and Judah for how they have abused and neglected the vulnerable. Does that surprise you? You know, Judah's statement in verse 26 surprises most religious people, that she is more righteous than I. Why does this surprise us? It surprises a lot of us because in our minds, we kind of have this um, hi like hierarchy of sins, okay? So there's bad things, and then there's really bad things, and then there's the worst things. And most of us would put Tamar's sins at the top of the list. Deceit and, you know, um, prostitution and, and, and incest. We're going to put that there along with homosexuality and abortion and the other things that we might think about in this day. Now, of course, don't get me wrong. All of these things are terribly sinful and they bring damage and they bring destruction to people's lives. But God looks down on this text and he sees something worse. He sees the vulnerable being neglected and abused. Consider with me just for a moment. You consider that God's hierarchy might not be the same as ours. That God's hierarchy might not be the same as ours. Not because he's justifying Tamar's behavior, but because God thinks her behavior is mitigated <laughs> by by the evil that's been perpetrated against her. 
We know this from the prophet Hosea. Hosea chapter 4 verse 14 commentators think that uh, this is referring back to Genesis 38 and this text that we've just read. The Lord says, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. Why? These things aren't good, Lord. Why won't you punish these things? For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. God is not saying that what Tamar did was right. He's saying her sin is mitigated by the greater sin of her abusers. And this theme is one that we will see throughout the Bible. The theme that God is passionate about justice and particularly so for the vulnerable. Psalm 146 verse 9, the Lord watches over sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. Zechariah chapter 7, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. Isaiah 1, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to who? The fatherless, plead the widow's cause. James 1:27. religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. In the Bible, the weight of justice falls upon those who have and yet who do not use their blessings to help those who have not. Let me say that again. The weight of justice in the Bible falls upon those who have and yet neglect to use the gifts and blessings and grace that they've been given to help those who have not. And so as I wrestled with this passage this week, and what a wrestling week it's been, here's what I felt. Here's what I heard God tell me. James, worry less about being like Tamar. And worry more that you're like Judah. Worry less about whether or not you've committed the latest spectacular sin. And worry more about whether you are using all that the Lord has given you to bless those who are vulnerable. Because that's the, that's the call of the Bible. And I feel convicted like that by that because me, like, like many of us, have been blessed with a lot. And so we're to use the blessings that we've been given for the sake of those who, who have not. And how quick we are. Aren't we quick? Just okay, maybe, maybe it's just me, okay? How quick I am to fall into this kind of entitlement mentality where I just assume that all the things I have are somehow the product of my hard work. Forgetting that everything I have is a blessing of God. Even my ability to work hard is a blessing from, from, from God. I mean, how many, I mean, we, we know it's not true when we're confronted with it. So I, I very much doubt any of you sat around the Thanksgiving table this week and said, I, Lord, I thank you that I am so awesome and I've achieved so much, right? If, if you said that, if someone in your family said that, send them for an appointment with me this week, okay? They need help. That's not the way we, um, it's not the way we speak, but it is sometimes the way we think. That the reason we, we have what we have is somehow the product of our, our hard work. But friends, where would I be? Where would you be? Where would we be if we'd been born in the favelas of Brazil? <laughs> or can I give you a more personal example? You know, there's a, 
a very well-established connection in the research between mental health issues and homelessness. And it's a connection that makes a lot of, a lot of just practical, logistical sense. Someone begins to struggle with their mental health and they miss a few days of, of work. And then they miss a few more days and, and they end up losing their job. And having lost their job with no financial you know, margin, they don't have money to pay for rent. <laughs> and so the spiral starts to go down and soon, soon they lose their place. They go from couch to couch for a little while, calling, calling upon friends, but soon time or energy or patience runs out and people find themselves on, on the streets. This cycle of uh, mental health to, to homelessness is a, is a really well-established connection. So here's my question for you. Um, you know I've, I've wrestled with my mental health. You know I've had some of these same struggles. So why am I homeless? Why am I homeless? What's the answer to that question? Is it that I've struggled with my mental health, but secretly I'm also awesome? <laughs> oh, man, I hate it, but that's not it. I've had these same struggles, and the reason I'm not homeless is that in these struggles, I had all kinds of resources. So I had financial margin that meant it never even occurred to me that I might miss a payment. I had a social network that meant I got connected to great counselors and psychiatrists really quickly. I had great relational network, which meant I had great friends and the best spouse. And all of these things triangulated together to enable me to get back on track. But I believe that the difference between me and the homeless guy you're going to drive past on Cedar Bluff when you leave church here today is that in the midst of that same struggle, I just had some things he didn't. And none of them were my own work. They were all the result of grace. They were all the result of, of something else that had been given to me by him. And I just wonder, do you see that about yourself? I'm not saying you'd have ended up homeless. Maybe your struggle would have been something else. <laughs> but worry a little less about being like Tamar. Worry more about being like Judah. Don't worry so much this week about whether you've committed the latest spectacular sin. Worry a little bit more this week about whether we've taken the blessings God has given us and, and used them for the sake of the vulnerable. You know, this is why our church, this is why every year we give over $3 million to the needy in, in our community and across the world. And it's why our, our lives should be marked by this kind of generosity as well. Now, friends, listen, I understand, can we, let's really practically for a moment here. We can't run out of here today and solve all the world's problems. And I want to guard against this vague sense of guilt that can so often creep in when we come to passages like this. We can't all run out and solve all the world's problems, but do you know what I can do? Do you know what you can do? We can run out and make a little dent. So where is it that your heart beats with a passion like God's? Maybe, maybe you're passionate about mental health issues. Maybe you're passionate about homelessness. Maybe you're passionate about the refugees in our community. Maybe you're passionate about education in the inner city. Maybe you're passionate about the widow or the orphan or the poor. You can be passionate about all sorts of things, but you don't know, you know, all of it. Yeah, we can't run out and do everything, but by God, we can all go and do something. 
That would be the call of this text. <laughs> for, for us to, to go out and, and use the blessings that we've been given for the sake of the vulnerable in our community. If you're not sure where to start, connect with Catherine Ann, our Director of Home Missions. She'll gladly, gladly connect you with needs. Point one, God is passionate about justice, especially for the vulnerable. This week, I had a bit of a David Nathan moment of my own. Maybe you need one as well. Something else, though, we need to see if we're to celebrate Christmas in this text. Yes, God is passionate about justice, but mercifully, God is also passionate about grace. God is also passionate about grace. Uh, we see this in the way that the Judas story ends. So God comes and stops him in his tracks, and he has this moment where Aniam, his eyes open, and, and he sees, and he repents. We see grace in his life in this very passage where he welcomes Tamar back into the family, not as his own, verse 26 tells us that he doesn't sleep with her again. He's just pulling her back in under the familial wings of his protection and of his provision. He's doing the thing he was supposed to do in the first place. But we also see grace at the end of Judah's life and see that this encounter changed him so that he was never the same again. He finds himself standing in Egypt before Joseph. Remember this passage? We read the setup to it, Genesis 37, earlier in, in the service. Joseph is, is one of Judah's brothers who has found himself in Egypt because his brothers sold him into slavery. His brothers were going to kill him because he was the, the favored child and he was kind of this young punk and they didn't like him and they thought, we're going to get, we're going to get rid of him until Reuben stands up and says, no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't kill him. That'd be, that'd be wrong for us, for us to do. And so Judah comes in and says, do you know what? You're right. We shouldn't, shouldn't kill him. He's our own flesh and blood. He's our brother. So let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. <laughs> it's like, thanks Judah. Right. And, and, so here Joseph is now, many years later, yes, having been sold as a slave, but now having risen to prominence in Egypt. He's like the prime minister now, now of, of, of Egypt, and there's a great famine in the land. And long story short, all of his brothers end up standing before him. The ones who'd wanted to kill him, the ones who sold him into slavery, they stand before him now. And Joseph decides that he's going to keep the youngest of them, Benjamin, with him in, in Egypt. Judah, though, knows that this would just kill their father, that this would be too much for him to handle. So at the very end of his life, what does Judah do? He offers his own life in the place of his brother Benjamin's. Judah, the one who sold his brother into slavery, Judah, the one who left Tamar in despair, becomes Judah, the one who'll, who'll give his life for the sake of another. And so you see, do you see it? Do you see how grace works? That God intervenes in his life and opens his eyes and he's never the same again. God sets him on this new path because God loves to take broken people and, and give them a new life. Why? Not because they deserve it, but because God loves grace. God loves grace. Which takes us very briefly to our third and final point, which is that he'll do the same for us. Because what do we see? Not only is God passionate about justice, not only is God passionate about grace, but God is also passionate about us. Where do we see that in this story? Well, in the way that the Tamar story ends. We read that she's spared and she lives to have, to have children. 
Perez and, and Zerah are born of her. And then fast forward to Matthew 1, there on your screen, and, and just see who makes an appearance there. The book of the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus, Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah. That's the family tree and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. What's my point in all of this? My point is that Tamar, this desperate and defeated woman, becomes the mother of Jesus. And Judah, this depraved and wicked man, becomes the grandfather of Christ. That there is space in God's family tree for the desperate and defeated. And there's space in God's family tree for the depraved and the wicked, which means there's space in God's family tree for, for us. Because in this Christ, justice and grace will meet. Justice as he dies on the cross to take the sin our sin deserves. Grace as he does that on our, on our behalf. Ian Duguid, one commentator, says, it is the story of God triumphing over the evil in us and the evil that is among us by using a broken, dysfunctional family tree to bring the Christ who would save to himself a larger, dysfunctional family. He's passionate about justice. He's passionate about grace, but he's also passionate about us. Friends, this Christmas... Um, it's okay to lose your keys. I can now tell you, personal experience, it will even be okay if you fill your tank with the wrong gas. <laughs> but let's, each of us, not miss what Christmas is all about. Let's celebrate. Christ has come for us <laughs> so we can live new lives of justice and grace because our God is passionate about justice, passionate about grace, and passionate about us. Amen. Father, we do thank you for this time together in your word and the challenge of it and the encouragement of it. The challenge of it that would come and say that, oh, not only are we sinners, but we might be the foremost. Pray you would forgive the Judah in each of us. But the encouragement, Lord, that such forgiveness is possible because you have come in grace come to take the, the justice we deserve that we might have everlasting life. And so we claim these promises that are ours in Christ and ask that you would help us to, to live new lives in response. We pray it all in his name. Amen.